continue to give us insight into your word, that as we take the truths that we find there, we would faithfully apply them to our lives, uh, not being uh, just merely uh, readers of the word or hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. For we pray this in Christ's name, and amen. All right, so we left off last week talking about um, Paul's instructions to Timothy over widows. Um, we opened chapter 5 with um, two classes of people within the church that, Tim- that Timothy is to be um, especially careful in how he interacts with them. Uh, Paul begins verse 1, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Then he begins to outline some of the abuses that are taking place. I think we're having a uh, no Sunday school teacher problem. Hey, 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 hey. You guys need to sit down and calm down, okay? We're trying to do Sunday school. <clears throat> so we, we ended at verse 8. Um, if anyone doesn't. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So let's move on. He, he gives a, a few more qualifications for how to deal with widows in the church. We had some really good discussions about that. But I want to press on. I want to try to get to the end of chapter 5 by the, uh, by the end of this uh, session. Um, so let's, let's pick up at verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work. So we'll stop there. These are the qualifications that Paul gives for someone who is eligible for what? What, what is he talking about? We talked about this last week. Yeah, financial support, right? So uh, um, what do you make of these qualifications? 60 years of age, okay, that's, that seems common. Probably not going to get remarried after that point. I mean, we might need to extend this age for our time because we live a lot longer than they did then. Um, 60 is, is quite old for their culture. So uh, they're not, you know, when an average male lives to be 37, you know, you, you, you make it to 60 and you've done pretty well. Um, but typically the women did live longer than the men. And so you can imagine at this point, she's probably not going to get remarried. And so uh, at 60, so this is why that's kind of the cutoff point. Now, we might, we might extend that to 70 now, right? I mean, um, you know, I see this every time I go into, come to church, there's a big Geisinger sign that says 65 is the new 45. So, um, you know, our health care being what it is, we, we live longer, we have longer life expectancy, and we're supposed to be in better shape at that age too. So um, uh, as much as we may not feel, feel like that. But um, so for this culture, 60 years of age, 
having been the wife of one husband. Now, we kind of addressed this question when we talked about elders. When, when he's saying this, is he, is he saying that she can't have ever been remarried to be eligible for financial support? What's he talking about? She only had one at a time, all right? Yeah, that, that's a good... That's a good. She was faithful to her husband while he lived. Paul says that um, after the death, the co- the covenant is annulled. Right? There's no. Uh, she's free to marry in the Lord, of course. Um, and so Paul's not saying that she can't have been married multiple times, but it has to have been not at the same time. Right? Uh, she can't have been a. What is? I don't even know what the word is for polyamor uh no that's uh, i don't know polygamy but i i wasn't sure if that was related directly to the male but maybe it might it might work for the female too it's it's obviously much rarer but there are instances of it um where women will have multiple husbands um so she's got to be the wife of one husband she has to be devoted to one man, just like uh, an elder to be qualified, has to be devoted to one woman. Um, Having a reputation for good works. And what is that? What does it look like to have a reputation for good works? And that he explains. That's why the ESV puts a colon there. So the good works that she's to have a good reputation in are she has brought up children again. Can a widow be enrolled in the church if she never had children? Yeah, that's not, Paul's not trying to differentiate out. He's just saying that what what pertains to a good reputation for a woman is normally having a reputation for having raised children. That's not always the case. Not everybody is blessed with children. And so... You know, um, you make we make those distinctions um, because there are other qualifications. Has shown hospitality, and what what is that? What does that pertain to? Yeah, yeah. I'm <clears throat> opening up your home in their in their culture. You know, it's not like they have Motel Six at you know Bethlehem and stuff. They they might have had inns and things, but they're very small. And normally, if anyone's traveling, you are expected to host them. Strangers, they're an Israelite, then you welcome them into your home. Um, and especially in the early Christian church, it's the, uh, it's the Christians. When they travel, no matter if they're you know, a part of the people of God, you welcome them into your home. You show hospitality to them. Um, Yeah, yeah. 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 Exactly. It's a disposition. Right? You've you've all met that person who's not hospitable, right? They're kind of prickly and you really don't want to get around them and uh you know anything can set them off, you know. So that's uh, this widow has a reputation for being having a, a hospitable disposition. She's welcoming. She's inviting, um, and that yeah, that extends to a lot of different areas.
has washed the feet of the saints. And this is just an idiom for service, right? Um, and, and service that might be pretty base. Uh, the Hebrews did not wash each other's feet. They had slaves do that, or servants, because it was considered not proper. Um, so, you know, they're walking around with open-toed sandals on dusty streets. They're nasty feet, and they, they wash them when they come inside. And so this is sort of an idiom for even the basis of service to other people, that you would humble yourself and care for their needs in things that are you might not want to do or um, might be below you, but you willingly lay down your life like Jesus did. So um, it's not necessarily, in our culture, we don't have that, right? We don't need to wash feet. Our feet are clean and, you know, or they should be. And, uh, and, uh, and we don't have that, that same problem. But we can understand service orientated towards the good of somebody else. Um, and sometimes it might be um, something that's, um, that's uh, humbling for us. Has cared for the afflicted. This is sort of visiting the sick, you know, being with somebody who's going through adversity, difficulties. Um, she's there. She's caring for them. I mean, my wife is like, you know, th- you can tell the difference between a nurturer and a man, you know, because my kids get sick and I'm like, stay away from me, you know. And my wife is like, bring them closer to me so I can care for them and get their sickness all over me. And you know, that's just the, that's what separates a mom from a dad. I don't, I don't have that. I'm like, here's your tea and here's your medicine and, you know, I'll stay in this room and don't come out, you know. <laughs> but my wife is like, no, you, I'll sleep on the couch with you and you can, you know, I'll make sure that you have everything you need. And, and, uh, and that's because she's, she's a nurturer. She cares for them in their affliction. And, um, and that's commendable. That, that is part of what makes a, a widow have this good re- reputation. And then, of course, the catch-all at the end, devoted herself to every good work. So, wow. I mean, this woman is incredible. She's like Proverbs 31. She's doing everything. Um, and, you know, what does, that, what does that tell you about what Paul's talking about here? Yeah, they've, yeah, 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 exactly. And I think it's because Paul is addressing a problem. There are people who are not qualified. There are people who should be getting married. We'll talk about that next. The younger widows, they should be getting remarried. There are others who have family who could care for them. They don't need the financial support. And there might be others who, they might be 60, but they're not qualified because they have not been have that giving disposition. So Paul continues now to, to make another distinction. He says in verse 11, But refuse to enroll younger widows, 
For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Well, let's stop there. What, what is Paul talking about? This has caused a lot of confusion and it has led to some abuses within the church. What do you think he's talking about? How can she... What's that? You give up? That's one, that's one, that's one possibility. Scholars say, okay, they're, they are being supported by the church. They're idle. They don't have anything to do. And now they're marrying outside of the Lord. So they're denying the faith. That is a distinct possibility. Others have said this is something like a nun, right? She's made a vow of celibacy, but now she's gone back on that vow. And she's, you know, she's not wholly devoted to the Lord. What's that? No, they didn't. Those didn't develop till about the fourth century. Yeah. Yep. But, um, but if. I'm I'm more inclined to see it as Cheryl saw it that that they're marrying outside of Christ, and so denying the faith, um, abandoning their former faith. Um, but some some see because that this is kind of a hypothetical situation. Paul's outlining. He's saying they he he says uh, their passions draw them away from Christ so that they desire to marry and so incur. Um, condemnation. This is not something that uh, some commentators think this isn't actually happening, but it could happen. And so we need to be cautious that young women aren't drawn away from um, whatever their commitment to Christ is. Um, and you could see how this would develop into the idea of making a, taking a vow of celibacy and being committed to Christ in that way. Um, because something like that is taking place. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think there's a, a clue if we w- if we go to First Corinthians seven. Let me find where I'm looking here. Yeah, yeah. So if you backed up a little bit to verse 32, he is kind of making a case for everyone to be single. 
and he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So what's Paul saying there? And we've all felt this, right, if you're married. If you're single, where is your devotion? To the Lord. You don't... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I've always come to a different I've always thought, man, I I have a responsibility to provide and care for my wife and children whereas if I didn't have that, I could go without a lot in service of Christ. I mean, I, if I, I could go and serve in some missionary position and need very little to sustain me. But if I have a wife, I, I have all kinds of added responsibilities. I, I've got to provide clothing and food and care for her, whereas I can deny myself those things, but it would be sinful and wrong for me to deny them to her. right? And so you have that added complexity of it's not just me devoted to God, but it's me and my family. So I, I don't think Paul's saying that you would ha- the, the married couple has a diminished spiritual life. I don't think that's what he's saying. But I'm saying that, but what he is saying is that somebody who's single is a little bit freer to pursue Christ than having also to pursue worldly things. And, um, you know, there's, a, there's, there's questions here. Um, this whole section, he, he begins, verse 31, he says, uh, well, it, it goes back further, but this is what I mean, brothers, in verse 29. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as, as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. And there are lots of questions. What is Paul referring to? And is he giving instructions to... uh, My own take on this is that Paul is talking about the church before A.D. 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, In Matthew 24, when Jesus, his disciples are oogling over the Temple Mount... Like, ooh, look at this, how wonderful it is. And Jesus says, not one of these stones is going to be left on another, but I'm going to destroy this whole place. And woe is the person who is in their house. Flee to the hills. You know, and he says, woe to the pregnant woman. You know, it's not going to be a great time. It's going to be a time of great tribulation. And actually, the early church took all those warnings very seriously, and none of the Christians were left in Jerusalem. They had all fled. So, but there is some, some commentators who say the, 
the, the things that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 6 relate to that time when the church is sort of shifting from being the old covenant with the temple and its sacrifices and the way that they did life then to the new covenant, which is a clean break in AD 70. There is now no old economy. There's no sacrifices. There's no temple worship. It's done. It's done away with. And so um, some think that Paul's speaking about that period right before that happens, which, of course, he's martyred before that takes place. So he's writing to the church to warn them that uh, this present form of the world is passing away. Um, and a new economy is established in Christ. And, uh, and, and I, I believe that took place in A.D. 70. Sure. Yes. Right. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep, and I think that he's addri- he is addressing an abuse that's taking place. That's my opinion, is that th- there are some who have families who could support them, and the church is doing it, and now they're having financial duress. And there are others who are younger who could go get married again and have children and raise families. And that's what he, he, he continues in verse 13. Besides that, they learn, these are the young widows, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. So, um, the reason why a lot of commentators think that some of these women are marrying outside of the Lord is that Paul addresses that in verse 15, for some have already strayed after Satan. Um, and so there's, there's good reason to believe that, but, it, but what, he's, what he's addressing is an abuse that's taking place where younger widows who could remarry are not. And instead, they're causing lots of problems. And he gives them a prescription to how to fix this. Get married, have children, manage a household, and qualify yourself as the one who has a good reputation for good works. Verse 10, right? That's all he lays out. Brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, he, he, he gives the locus of the woman's sphere that she's to operate within. Have children, manage their households, and give the adversary 
no occasion for slander. This is the the answer to the problem that church is facing. Um, it's not that uh, there aren't people who should be supported by the church. There are, but they need to be qualified. They have to fit within these criteria so that these abuses don't continue. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it didn't work like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't work. It didn't work like that. Marriages were arranged and yeah. If he's still living or possibly the elders of the church. That happened a lot. The elders knew, okay, well, I got a qualified guy over here. I got a widow here. You guys get married in the Lord. This works out great. I'm glad that's not part of my job description. We have ladies who do that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. It is very weird. Yeah. And and our, our track record's not real great. <laughs> We're not doing too good because arranged marriages have a much stabler base for their marriage than our kind of sappy romantic love version of marriage. Right. How many of you had great wisdom at 19? So, you know, but, yeah, 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 all of you did, yeah. But, Dad, I love him, you know, is the, and that's the criteria. Uh, well, what, are, what, are, what makes him qualified for you, or are you qualified for him? But, yeah, you know, a, a family has some wisdom that they could offer in, in these situations. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Most of the marriages in Africa when I was a missionary, those were mostly all arranged marriages. and Yeah, it was interesting. It can be abused like anything, but, but um, because 
sometimes the father's looking out not necessarily for the daughter's good, but for his political good, right? This is why they, oh, I need to forge a connection with his family. And uh, so it, it's not, wherever there are sinful people, there will be abuse of anything that can be good. Um, marriage is no exception. So, um, but, but. Yeah. Elaborate. Only if they, he didn't have children. If he had children, then they weren't, they didn't marry. But if they didn't have children, then the brother was to marry the wife to give him children, to carry on his name. Uh, it was a different kind of marriage, um, not really a marriage at all, uh, but a, uh, an opportunity for his brother's seed not to die out. So, um, again, abuse is there as well. So Paul continues, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that he may care for those who are tr- truly widows. And we, we said in the beginning that um, we made a distinction between, I think it's, let's see, but if a, in verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own households and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. And I said that I, I take that to refer to the widows. They need to make a return to their own household. And the reason I did that is because later on, Paul addresses families, children, caring for widows. So both are covered. That's why I take that, let them be referring to the widows because in verse 16 he clearly says if there's a believing woman in the church she should be caring for the widows in her own family um, this is uh, a responsibility that we all have right uh, to honor our mother and father part of that is caring for them in their old age um, and and I, you know i'm i've been blessed by the testimony of so many of you who have moved here or have you know got into a, a bigger house so that you could care for your family members. It's, it's a wonderful testimony of the grace of God because where I came from in the Northwest, it's not like that. People are transitory, and they don't... The mother and father are in the nursing home. That's where the natural place is. And uh, so when I came here and I, I saw so many people doing that, I was blessed by that, just to hear that, uh, because it's not, that's not always the case. Um, sadly, uh, our, you know, widows within the family are not always cared for. And then the Christian church needs to step in, right? We said, Paul's making some general rules. We don't make rules on this, the outliers, right? We never make rules based on, uh, things that don't fit in, right? We always make general rules and we make exceptions for things that are extraordinary, Will there be somebody who has family members who could care for them but don't, and the church should step up and care for them? Yeah, we said yes, they should. You know, so we, we want to be careful not to be wooden. Paul is trying to give some um, general principles to the church, to elders specifically. What should it look like to have 
a line item on your budget, care for widows? Well, it should look like this. You know, she should be over 60 and have meet these qualifications um, and, uh, and, and move on from there. Christian charity would call us to, to visit widows and orphans in their affliction no matter if we, we have, you know, uh, the ability to get at the funds of the church, right? We're all called to do that. So Paul's not talking about the general call for Christian charity. He's talking about the specific call for the church to support a certain type of class within the church. Does that make sense? Any questions about this this section? Yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. It is, yeah. Yep. Yeah, other cultures are much better at it. We are American. We have our, this, my home is my private space. Nobody comes into it, right? I pull into the garage. We don't have this in Scranton, but, you know, it's typically in, like, suburbs. You have a garage. You pull into the garage. You shut the garage, and you get out. You never see your neighbors. You have a fence around your house, and this is my castle, you know. Nobody comes into my castle, um, but that's, you know, and other cultures are not that way at all. I remember first couple months as a missionary in Africa, you know, just a kid. I was 17 years old. I had no idea cultural things. And people were inviting me over to their house. And they, you know, they were feeding me. And it, to me, it wasn't a feast. I didn't know. But they were, like, giving above and beyond of their self. And I'm going from house to house to house getting these feasts. And I don't know that it's costly to them. And how much, and how um, they they really feel like they need to come in and bless me, and uh, and provide this feast for me everywhere I go. So after that, I begin to be a little bit more cautious about when I said yes, and begin to invite people more over to my house so I could reciprocate, right? But I didn't realize that at first. Um, there's a part of their culture is, you know, kill the fatted calf. Anyone comes over, even if they can't afford it. Um, and so we don't have that kind of thing. We we think. Well, I can't afford it, so I'm not going to do it, you know. And ladies, you in particular have a hard time because it's like I have to have my house perfect and in order. Everything has to be like the catalog. And if it doesn't look like the catalog, then I can't have somebody over. Um, but that's not what Paul's talking about, you know. Um, yeah. 
Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. When we get so busy that we can't obey the injunctions of the New Testament, we might want to step back and ask ourselves, is this good? I mean, we have we are living in a burnout culture. People are have worked themselves and it's because we have ad- adopted this idea that we're machines. You know, but that's not the model or the metaphor that should describe humans. We're not machines. We Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That's true. Yep. 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 Yeah. 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 It's it's uh we 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 aspire to that, but the step to actually do it is the hard part. <laughs> yeah. It's not a Rembrandt, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yep, yep. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Oh yeah. 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 Yep. Yeah. 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 I think I think so too. And I, you know, I'm in the same position. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for an elder and his wife who took me under their wing and fed me all the time. I mean, I, it's, it's almost, it's, I almost got to the point where the proverb where you're too much in your friend's house, you know, I almost got to that point, but you know, it was like such a benefit just to, just to sit and watch this man with his wife and kids and interact with his family and learn theology from him. And I wouldn't be here if I didn't have all those interactions, if I, if I didn't have his hospitality that also was the impetus for me doing hospitality with people in the church. I didn't know anything about the Christian faith, but I was like, yeah, yeah, you can come over. You know, we'll talk about something. I don't know what, but he's doing it, so I'm going to do it, you know. Um, so we, we older couples can set an example of that for the younger folks as well. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good good to know. Yeah. 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 That's hospitality. Yeah. Jenny. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It leaves an impression on you, right? Yeah. Well, let's continue on. Paul's going to pivot and begin to talk about elders now. He says in verse 17, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So, um, what's, what's Paul addressing here? 
Elder is the term presbyteros, which is um, where we get Presbyterian from, but it's also um, synonymous with episkopos, which is an overseer or bishop. Paul uses the word interchangeably in Titus 1. So here he's referring to the elders of the church. And um, what do you think he means by double honor? Yeah. The salary, right? They get paid. Um, And he says, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. This is one of the reasons why you pay a pastor, right? Um, Because he he works, he labors. And Paul gives two reasons for that. One is from the law. Uh, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, why, why is that a defense for paying the pastor? What's that? What's that referring to? Wow, Cheryl. Say what you really think of me. (laughs) Yep, yeah. Well, think about it. What what is an ox doing? So you. Yeah, so he's treading out the grain, right? You, they would stomp them down on these wooden platforms or on places where the chaff could rise up and the grain would fall. And and uh, you know, but if he's if he's laboring for you to have grain, why would he not be uh, able to have some of that grain as well? Um, and so, but that's not the only. Then he also says the laborer deserves his wages. And that is a quote from Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Jesus is speaking. And he says, this is after he sent the 72 out. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Okay, so what's he talking about? It's the same theme of hospitality. There's a couple really important things here. Mm -hmm. Yep. At the end of the day, yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. So that's also from the law. But what are these people doing? They're not, they're laboring, but what's their labor? 
boom, yeah. They're preaching and teaching. They're going and they're opening up the gospel to households. And Jesus says the laborer is worthy. The laborer deserves his wages. Jesus is saying this. Paul is quoting from the gospel of Luke. What does that mean? It's the word of God. The gospels are attested as early as Paul. This is a direct quote from the gospel of Luke because Luke is Paul's companion, right? He's the physician that attends him in his, from his second missionary. Was this his second or third? It's his second missionary journey on. Uh, he, had, he is with Paul. And so uh, um, most likely Luke's gospel is Paul's gospel, right? He's the one that's um, declaring to him the truth that Luke wasn't there. But Luke is compiling a faithful testimony from source documents, from other things like that, and he puts it together for Theophilus. Well, Paul quotes from that as Scripture, and it's the words of Jesus. So that's important for us just in our doctrine of inspiration. So he says, the laborer deserves his wages. And this is for elders who are in the church who rule well, they're to be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So what, is it, what does it mean to rule well? Yeah, they're worthy of respect and honor, right? They're not disreputable. They fit the qualifications from 1 Timothy 3, and they faithfully live them out. And so if they're ruling well, they're worthy of that respect. And especially those who are doubly laboring, who are working even harder to bring you the gospel message, right? But then he continues in verse 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So what's he describing here? What's he talking about? Yep. Yeah, so we have that. We have an elder who's been charged with something, but how do you go about charging him? How do you get to that part? Can't be just hearsay. It's got to have witnesses, two or three witnesses, right? This is from the law. We don't, we don't entertain any charges. You don't have somebody coming up in the side wing saying, hey, the, the, one of the elders is doing this. It has to follow a process, and it's the same process you would use in a court case, right? And so you need witnesses. It has to be corroborated because these men are not just average Joes. These are the ones that are supposed to be above reproach, that are ruling over you. And so if they're not above reproach, it can't be just hearsay. It has to be backed by the witnesses of the church. 
Otherwise, it's just slander. So we ought to be careful not to speak against the leaders of the church. And that goes for calling things heresy when we haven't really determined that it is. Right? We ought to be careful in dealing with folks like uh, Greg Johnson, for instance, right? who is a pastor in the, teach- in the church. He's a teaching elder who has passed all the examinations. And whether or not we find him to be faithful, we ought to be careful about entertaining charges against him without having two or three witnesses, right? So we ought to be careful about the flippant way that we speak about our leaders. But there is a process. There is a process for dealing with sin. If you have sin within a church, Paul's not saying, well, just because they're an elder, they're untouchable. No, that's not the case. But just make sure that when you have charges, you bring them with other people. And, and then because of the public nature of their office, their sin will be publicly displayed as a deterrent for others. Don't do this. You see this. You see what this is and you see this discipline. Don't do it. That's, a, that's a, a, an example to other elders, but it's an example to the whole community. And then he says, don't be hasty to ordain elders. Make sure that these men that are being ordained meet these qualifications from chapter 3. Don't put a novice in there. Don't put somebody who's young, who won't be able to stand under this kind of pressure, right? Let, test him first. Don't be hasty in doing this. You know, this happens a lot, especially in church planting situations. Because they want to get an elder board, you know, they want elders. And so they'll, you know, hey, I mean, you're good at business, you, you know, then they'll put them over the church. And uh, it ends up usually in, in having problems later on. So Paul says, keep yourself pure and don't, don't do that. Then he continues in verse 23, no longer drink only water. But use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Apparently, Timothy had a weak constitution. Um, and so Paul's encouraging him. Look, this is it may be that uh, part of it comes from the challenge of pastoral ministry in Ephesus. That he's dealing with these wolves, these people who need to be reproved, who need to be corrected. And that's um, done, you know, it's scientifically proven that stress is hard on your body. Um, it eats away at you. So um, he is, you know, saying you got to take care of yourself along with caring for the body of Christ. And then he adds at the end, the sins of some people are conspicuous going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Why does he add that? Sin and good works are conspicuous. Sometimes. Yeah. They will come out eventually, but it's not often not apparent at first. 
So be circumspect in the way that you examine somebody, right? Think of, uh, uh, sometimes we think of just life as the, the, the photo, but life is a video. It's ongoing. So be circumspect in the way that you think that person has no fruit or that person has lots of fruit. And then in the end, you see it wasn't fruit at all. It was the plastic stuff you put on the table and it, it was worthless, you know. But it looked shiny and it worked for the photograph. But in the long term, it doesn't bear out. So be circumspect. Um, yeah. We are. We make snap judgments. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good. Well, we made it. This is the first time we have ever made it to where I wanted to make it to. Amazing. I'm so proud of you guys. And I just broke my thing. There we go. All right, let's close in prayer. And we are uh, um, going to take the next two weeks off from Adult Sunday School. So next week, the 19th and the 26th, there'll be no Sunday School classes, no adult or children's Sunday School. So um, take the time, spend it with your family, and uh, come fresh for worship. So we'll pick this study back up at the beginning of the new year. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for our time together in your word and pray that as we think about things like hospitality and how we can love one another in community, uh, a challenge that we all aspire to but find difficult, help us to learn to give of ourselves, to love uh, sacrificially in the way that Christ uh, emptied himself and gave of himself as we uh, have been reflecting on this Christmas season with the incarnation. We pray that we would have that same mind among ourselves. That we would not count ourselves as, as more uh, worthy than others, but we would be giving and loving in ways that demonstrate and um, bear witness to the gospel at work in us. Pray that you prepare our hearts and minds as we come to worship you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.